Colleagues, uh, this is uh, Karen Tate, and you're listening to Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio on Blog Talk. And uh, I am happy to have with me today uh, Kurt Lindsley. And uh, we're going to be talking about an important topic, uh, one that's been in the news lately, especially with uh, people sheltered in. Uh, No doubt you've heard in the news uh, about uh, domestic violence uh, being something uh, on the minds of a lot of people as uh, uh, folks are forced to, um, you know, be together without... uh, you know, access to the outside world or, um, you know, maybe support systems they might have in families or the workplace. Uh, You know, many times, uh, you know, these uh, victims of domestic violence or um, at home with their abusers, um, you know, suffering, uh, you know, the slings and arrows of, uh, you know, how frustrated everyone is. Uh, being sheltered in in this pandemic. So uh, today uh, our topic is uh, why combating domestic violence is everyone's responsibility. Uh, And my guest, Kurt Lindsley, uh, has been actively uh, leading nonprofit and community organizations for over 20 years. Uh, he co-founded uh, and uh, was founding president of the Covington Domestic Violence Task Force, uh, official sponsor of Purple Light Nights, uh, and is the founder and CEO of Go Purple USA, uh, official sponsor of Go Purple Day. Uh, Kurt serves as uh, the president of the board of directors for Crisis services uh, in uh, North America. And he facilitates uh, national awareness campaigns to engage communities across America to take a stand against domestic violence and to show their support for survivors. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, Kurt, um, welcome uh, to Voices of the Sacred Feminine uh, to talk about this important subject. Well, thank you so much. It's my honor to be with you on your show today. Um, so, Kurt, let me just um, uh, go over a couple little housekeeping tidbits uh, we didn't get a chance to cover before the show. Uh, I am on a satellite phone, and there is a slight delay when we speak, uh, so we both have to kind of be a little bit uh, aware uh, to let the other person finish a sentence before we you know, might get excited and jump in and comment. So uh, <laughs> that's about the only thing <laughs> um, I wanted to tell you, uh, we will probably uh, take a break at the half hour. Uh, But, um, uh, you know, you know, usually when you hear uh, folks talk about, um, you know, combating domestic violence, it's, um, it's something that you hear, I think, more often coming from women. Uh, One of the reasons I wanted to have you on the show, uh, because you're a male spokesperson. I wonder um, if you might explain how you you got into this, um, you know, this line of work, so to speak. Yeah, well, thank you. Well, back in uh, the early 2000s, I was serving as the chairperson for the Covington Youth and Family Services Commission. And uh, what we were responsible for is we had a number of different nonprofits that applied for grant money from the city. And so they had a detailed application that they completed. Uh, They came and made a presentation to our commission. In many cases, we went out and made uh, site visits. And so we really did a deep dive into a lot of these different issues of services that were being provided by nonprofits. And um, what I really was convicted of is three of the nonprofits that we chose to fund were domestic violence related. There was a local domestic violence shelter for our community. There was a a crisis hotline. And there was also a sexual assault resource center that helped to provide advocacy support, uh, primarily for women that were going to court in uh, assault and domestic violence uh, related situation. 
And and I've had uh, some family members that have gone through that. Um, they've experienced domestic violence. The thing that really broke my heart as we did a deep dive into this topic was that the vast majority of women in the Seattle area, um, which is where I was living at, there was not shelter space for them. And so the, the vast majority of people that needed to leave a domestic violence situation, there was no place for them to go. And uh, there was, and I really, as I learned more and more about this issue, I realized that this is literally an epidemic problem uh, when you consider the magnitude of how many millions of people that are directly impacted uh, by domestic violence. And uh, and so, just to be honest with you, my my heart was broken over just learning about the devastation of uh, so many people that were um, negatively impacted by this issue. And so the city's liaison to our commission, uh, Victoria Thrawn, and I co-founded the Covington Domestic Violence Task Force to begin working on initiatives in our community to do something about the problem, to raise funds, to raise awareness, to help with education, uh, help people to know about what resources were available and where they could turn to get help. And so that was kind of my initial okay. um, jump in to uh, this issue. Okay. Uh, and before I respond to that, um, let me just ask you, are you on a speakerphone, uh, or do, do you have the ability to maybe get a little bit closer to your mic uh, because the sound is just a little bit off? Okay. Um, no, I'm not on a speakerphone, but um, I'll, I'll uh, speak uh, clearly into the uh, microphone now. Okay, great. Thanks. Um, so, so Kurt, um, you call this an epidemic, and um, I'm going to ask a big question here, and, you know, maybe there's not an easy answer, but why do you think uh, domestic violence is uh, so rampant? Uh, you know, why is it such an epidemic? I mean, do we lay this at the feet of religion uh, because, uh, you know, women have been relegated to a second-class citizen, uh, subservient, you know, to men, uh, in service to men? Uh, do you think it starts there, or is it more complicated than that? Well, I, I think... Um well, first of all, when you talk about the numbers, let me just mention this, first of all. Um, throughout the United States, we're looking at one in four women and one in seven men will experience domestic violence at some time in their lifetime. In some states, that statistic is as high as one in three women. So it literally is affecting millions and millions of people. I think one of the issues related to this topic is that what you said is uh, I would agree with in terms of um, culture. A lot of times um, women haven't been relegated the respect and honor uh, that they deserve. And, um, and we see a lot of those attitudes and values being passed down from generation to generation. And particularly with this issue of domestic violence, we see that there are patterns that occur with this uh, literally from generation to generation. When when someone grows up in a household where um, there is a perpetrator and somebody is experiencing domestic violence, even though the the person that views that may uh, really loathe the behavior, it still has a means of becoming learned behavior and almost um, that it becomes normalized because this is what people see growing up. And so, so often we just see this get passed on from generation to generation to generation. And there really needs to be uh, a lot more people speaking out about this issue and doing something about it, not just accept the status quo as is. 
Okay. Um, it, you know, makes makes total sense. And, um, you know, we've been hearing a lot in the media because of uh, so many uh, folks being sheltered in with the pandemic uh, that this is uh, particularly explosive right now. Uh, is that media hype or uh, is would you say that's a, a fair uh, assessment? I would say that is definitely a fair assessment. I know here in uh, North Alabama, where I uh, serve as president of Crisis Services, um, they have experienced an uptick in the number of domestic violence incidents that have been reported, about the number of phone calls coming in on the crisis line. And part of it is because of with the quarantine situation, it's made it less um, easy or readily available for people to be able to uh, distance themselves from, you know, somebody that may be in the same household that's experienced, you know, that's uh, showing some of those traits of um, demeaning the other person, um, you know, through verbally and emotionally as well as physically. Um, and then also a lot of times when you, when you consider the, um, a lot of people have been stressed financially, and that's just another uh, factor that can go into um, contributing to that type of an environment where domestic violence occurs when there's a financial stressor uh, as, a, as a part of okay. it. Uh, and, and I want to get into what the typical signs of abuse are so that we can maybe recognize it happening to friends, neighbors, loved ones. But let me ask you uh, first, I've always heard that uh, the most dangerous time for someone who's being abused is when they're actually trying to get away from the abuser. Um, is that true? And can you speak to that a bit? Yes, it is. Uh, it is probably, I would say, generally speaking, that is the most dangerous time um, because the the person who's experienced domestic violence is at the point where they're ready to take action, and and really the nature of the relationship where domestic violence occurs, um, the perpetrator is uh, controlling. That's the overarching characteristic we find in the perpetrator that they're uh, very controlling in behavior. And so when, um, and again, in most cases, it's a woman we're talking about that would be leading a domestic violence situation, but it can be very dangerous. In a lot of cases, the, um, the perpetrator has, has made threats uh, towards them or towards children, if there's children involved. And, uh, and in, in so many cases, because of the nature of this relationship that's occurred, the, the person who's suffered domestic violence, they so often feel cut off and isolated and alone. And, so, and, and that's another very important reason why it's so critical for, for others to be aware of signs of domestic violence. And so... Uh, when you consider the fact that when we're talking about one in four women and one in seven men, every one of your listeners is going to know a number of people that either have experienced domestic violence or may in the future. I mean, just mathematically, statistically, that would be uh, a fact. And so if more of us are aware of the indicators for that, then, and we're also aware of what people can do to get help, we're going to be a resource to people that we care about and be able to help them because, again, so often the person that's in that situation, they feel isolated and trapped. They don't know where to go, and uh, it's a really, really difficult and, and dangerous situation for so many. Well, now you've said that they feel isolated and trapped, uh, but do they – but is that – come afterwards? I mean, in the beginning, do they even realize they're being abused? And might they also stick around because um, of, uh, you know, it, it's an economic issue? Yeah, that's, that's definitely a factor. And I, I would agree with you about the, the typical process that occurs. 
um, in a relationship where um, where domestic violence eventually takes place, what often occurs is the the perpetrator uh, typically has very narcissistic type tendencies. But what they do at the beginning is they woo the person. They show a lot of attention um, to this, you know, to the person, and so the so the person in the relationship, in many cases the woman again, thinks, "Oh, this person uh, loves me. They care so much about me." But then, what begins from that initial stage of the relationship uh, changes and transforms into a controlling type of relationship. And so, the way that plays out typically is the um, the perpetrator will try to make the uh, victim dependent upon them. They'll discourage them from relationships uh, with their family and friends. Um, they'll make them dependent upon everything uh, for them for emotional support and help and financial support. And, uh, and, and those are kind of the steps that lead into uh, this pattern of behavior that uh, a lot of times, you know, further down the process, stalking often, often happens where the perpetrator may be monitoring uh, texts and social media and phone calls and, um, you know, observing who they're hanging out with when they're at work. And, and it's really like this overarching controlling type of an environment um, that the person uh, finds himself in. And so because of that, the, um, the victim or the survivor feels isolated and they're made to feel isolated from their support uh, system, uh, from, you know, their family and their friends. The other thing that I think is a big factor in the isolation part of it is a lot of people really that, who have um, been on the receiving end of uh, acts of violence, um, there's a lot of guilt and shame that unfortunately um, people um, hold on to through that relationship. And the, the perpetrator often demeans the person so that the person feels like they're, uh, you know, it must be my fault that this violence is being acted out towards me and really, uh, you know, lowering their self-esteem. And so there's, a, there's guilt and shame in even sharing that with people because they feel, well, if I wasn't such a bad person, if I wasn't such a bad wife, if I wasn't such a bad mom, then he wouldn't have to hurt me or put me down or whatever. And so it's kind of, it all kind of feeds into that cycle of what we see uh, time and time again in, in that type of relationship. Okay, and, and just a quick reminder to, uh, you know, stay as close as you can to your mic. Um, you know, this, yeah. um, this, this, might, this might be a crazy question, um, but, you know, we often hear about, uh, uh, you know, it's kind of this roller, roller coaster kind of, of a relationship. You know, the, the honeymoon phase, you know, comes after a big blow-up. Um, and, you know, and, and that keeps cycling, you know, uh, abuse, makeup, abuse, makeup, abuse, makeup. Um, you know, this might be a parallel track, um, but, you know, uh, thinking in terms of, um, you know, emotional abuse more than physical abuse, do you find that uh, this kind of thing also happens in the workplace, uh, that bosses may, perpe- you know, perpetuate abuse uh, onto their employees, uh, you know, in the very same way? I think it does have a lot of applications, including that way. And particularly when you're, when you think about how many people um, have experienced domestic violence, you think about all of the people that have suffered it, but also the millions who've um, expressed that, that, there are a lot of people that haven't learned really appropriate ways of showing, of treating other people and, you know, showing respect and honor. And to me, that's one of the underlying issues uh, that I feel that's at the the forefront of domestic violence is if we had enough 
care and concern about the welfare and the well-being and the value of other people, then um, this would be a lot different conversation that we're having. And yet people, you know, they put others down and they demean other people and think that they're better than them instead of recognizing we all have value and worth. So I feel like that's a big uh, part of the equation. Okay, and thank you. You're in the perfect spot right now. That's the sweet spot if you can stay okay. right there. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, uh, typical signs of an abuser. I mean, you've said some of the things that they do to keep control of uh, the person they're abusing, uh, but what are some of the signs that uh, those of us on the outside might see uh, to, uh, you know, get a clue and, I don't know, uh, should we try to reach out and help? Yes. So um, so the, the overall characteristic that is most prevalent, prevalent, I would say, is someone who's very controlling. And that kind of shows itself in a lot of different ways. So a lot of the indicators that we see that are common are a person that shows extreme jealousy, um, someone who's very possessive, uh, and they're not comfortable with uh, the you know, other party, the, the survivor, getting uh, attention. They, they want this person to rely on them. Um, we see a lot of unpredictability, so they'll just do things off the cuff, uh, and that, you know, coupled with that is a bad temper. You know, some little thing can set them off. And uh, and also to, to go along the lines of what you mentioned, we do frequently see that cycle, this up and down cycle where a perpetrator will act out and then they'll be very, they'll come across as being very remorseful to try to smooth things over. And again, the and it just repeats this cycle over and over again. So that's uh, that's very common. Um, one of the issues is that there's a direct correlation with a lot of people who are perpetrators of domestic violence is if they've shown cruelty to animals. And so this is something that um, sometimes um, kids can, if they act this out when they're, you know, growing up as a child, maybe they've seen violence in their household and they act it out. That typically is something that escalates um, to domestic violence or can escalate to that. Uh, we see things like verbal now, abuse. Go, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, no, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I thought, I thought you had finished. Uh, uh, please continue, um, you know, sharing the information. Sure, sure. So verbal and emotional abuse are very common it's not just about somebody physically injuring. It's really a whole pattern of demeaning and controlling and making the person uh, feel devalued so that they rely on the perpetrator. And they, a lot of that is done through verbal abuse and emotional abuse, and, and those go really hand-in-hand hand, um, with this problem. Um, you know, and sometimes we see antiquated beliefs about roles of women and men in relationships. So, you know, sometimes people think, well, the man is the boss, the man calls the shots, the man is in charge of everything. And, um, and that kind of feeds into um, this view of the man is of more value and worth than the woman and um, and that just kind of helps perpetrate those same um, attitudes uh, as well. Uh, well, and I'm also wondering about the abuser who um, is maybe more subtle, uh, maybe charismatic, um, and, uh, you know, it's hard for the abuser to convince anyone. I mean, maybe I've seen too many movies. I don't know. Uh, but, you know, you see these movies where, you know, the woman is uh, being gaslighted 
and people think, oh, well, she's just married to the most wonderful husband in the world because he puts on this incredible act, you know, when they're out in public, but then, you know, she suffers behind closed doors. Um, is that typical, or is that kind of just a Hollywood, um, you know, uh, made-up scenario? Well, I, it, it definitely describes some of the people. Uh, now, not everyone not all situations are like that. Um, but um, a lot of times the perpetrator is somebody who's very charismatic type of a personality who people think, you know, oh, he must be the greatest person, you know, out there. And yet the behaviors um, indicate something different. And it's, um, it's this public persona that's different from how they actually live behind closed doors. Um, but again, the, the the characteristics behind closed doors of the controlling is going is is um, going to be prevalent in that situation. It's um, across the board. The person uh, they might seem like they're the most gregarious, outgoing, uh, great person, but there's this controlling dynamic that's going on that's uh, uh, really taking place behind closed doors. Okay. Um, you know, it, uh, getting back to signs, for instance, um, I wonder, you know, if uh, you have a girlfriend that maybe can never uh, have a night out with the girls or maybe she comes to work with a, uh, a bruise on her face or uh, maybe she just talks about herself in the context of, uh, she's uh, somebody's husband or, uh, you know, I mean, would those maybe be red flags that uh, there's something a, a little bit off or would that be, you know, grasping? No, it wouldn't necessarily be, be grasping. Those are all things that are pretty indicative of, of you know, of, that type of relationship happening now it doesn't of course mean that across the board but it, it can uh, be indicators and if you see somebody that's you know has bruising uh, somebody maybe who's injured repeatedly that would be a, a real big sign uh, if there's a situation where you know a woman is not is made to be isolated and is not allowed to spend time with her friends or family however it's put, but if that's kind of the reality of her situation, um, that is to me a red flag because it, it seems to indicate a controlling relationship going on there or someone who's, um, who, who also is in the relationship that might be cutting them off from relationships, and that's part of the pattern that we see frequently. One of the things that no, is it, very... One of the things that's a very valuable no, resource that I just thought I'd mention to you and also to your listeners is um, the National Domestic Violence Hotline. The National Domestic Violence Hotline is a great resource for someone who's either experiencing domestic violence or if you know someone and you suspect that may be going on, they have trained uh, counselors that are there, and this is a 24-7 um, hotline. And so um, they can call in, talk to a counselor about the situation and get um, input and counsel uh, about it and also about what, uh, what they can do next. Uh, and if that's okay, I'll uh, share the phone number for the hotline with your listeners. Sure, absolutely. Please do. Okay. And that number is 800-799-7233. So, again, that's 800-799-7233. Now, um, Kurt, I'm going to also ask you, you know, you said uh, this happens to men one in seven times, women one in four times. Um, it, are the signs all the same for men? I mean, everything you've described, uh, you know, we've kind of assumed was a, abuse of, a, you know, domestic violence toward a woman. But uh, is it any different when it comes to a man being abused? 
Well, I, I think that uh, a lot of the signs are similar. And, uh, and, of course, where a lot of abuse occurs is in, you know, a lot of times we see that in the form of child abuse initially where it's being acted out towards a parent, towards a child, could be a daughter or a son, um, that, you know, that eventually somebody, as they grow, they um, have experienced that already in their life. But uh, a lot of the signs are, are similar. I think uh, there's a greater stigma. I think that a lot of people feel as a male, uh, if, if they've experienced uh, domestic violence, and uh, sometimes that could be, you know, with a, uh, you know, a same-sex partner or it could be a, um, a female that's perpetrated the violence towards them. And uh, and so I think statistically, the number of men that come forward and talk about it is is considered to be a lower percentage. But in in all cases, it's it's something that uh, so often this issue gets swept under the carpet, and people don't feel to have like they have the freedom to be able to talk about what's happening in their homes, and just a lot of fear and worry is a big part of it reality for them. Okay. Uh, We're going to take a quick break here, uh, and when we come back, uh, I want you to explain why you believe domestic violence is um, everyone's responsibility, combating it is everyone's responsibility, and uh, have you talk a little bit more about Go Purple Day and and Purple Light Nights, and uh, uh, but uh, hang on for just a minute because uh, I have a word uh, for my listeners from Joe Carson. Most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock as you. And I came out of it because this is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Uh, and that was uh, a word from Joe Carson about her book, uh, Dancing with Gaia. Uh, and you can uh, find out uh, more about that at uh, the website uh, dancingwithgaia.com. Um, so I'm speaking with uh, Kurt Winsley. Uh, he's uh, the CEO and founder of uh, Go Purple USA. Uh, and we're talking about uh, why combating domestic violence is everyone's responsibility. Uh, so, Kurt, tell us why. Why is it all of our responsibility to try to combat domestic violence? I think, I think a number of things that we've talked about here are real strong indicators for that. So first of all, we're talking about one in four women, one in seven men that will go through this in their lifetime. And so literally every one of us knows a number of people that will experience domestic violence. So this is a personal problem. This isn't something that uh, is happening to some other person that I don't know, but this is a reality of our world. And um, now we may not know specifically who is going through this, but just statistically, when you consider one out of every four women, every one of us is going to know people that have gone through this or are experiencing this. So this is a big deal. Uh, And because of the nature of the relationship that happens typically for domestic violence, it really takes, uh, which is one of control, it's one of isolation, It's one of um, causing dependency upon the perpetrator or fostering that kind of an environment. It really takes people coming alongside uh, to be aware of the signs, to be be speaking out about this issue that enough is enough. This is not acceptable. The the patterns uh, of the past where something like this just got swept under the carpet and uh, didn't get talked about. That's not acceptable. 
Um, and it, it really takes more and more voices of people speaking out about this problem of people being aware of the indicators for it and being able to help people um, to get the help that they need. And, and for me, a big part of this also is dealing with the underlying values. It's about valuing the worth of every person, that another person is not to be treated um, you know, demean and put down, and that happens so often in uh, these type of relationships. So, um, so Kurt, what what is um, behind, you know, what drives the abuser? I mean, I know you've said they they need control, but is it really fear? Uh, is is fear? I mean, not that we're making excuses, but just to kind of understand the psychology. Um, you know, is it Fear that makes them, uh, you know, have this incredible need for control and even, you know, do so many of the things you described. Yeah, I think fear is a is a major factor. Uh, there's fear that the person in the relationship will leave them, and and the person, the perpetrator, has somehow gained some understanding of relationship that is very unhealthy, uh, whether, and again, likely this may have been part of what they grew up with or what they've been exposed to, but they have this uh, very unhealthy view of how a relationship should work, where one person is calling the shots and the other person is dependent upon them instead of it being a, a, a relationship that's mutually supporting each other. And, um, so I think that that definitely plays a, a role. Okay. Um, so before I let you go, uh, tell us about uh, Go Purple Day or uh, Purple Light Nights. Is this something that's a lo- local or national? Well, Purple Light Nights, uh, first of all, is an international movement. We uh, we actually started this back in 2006. And the idea, and this was started in Covington, Washington, which is a suburb of Seattle. And uh, what we did was the idea was during the month of October, which is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, purple is the color that's recognized internationally with the cause against domestic violence. And so what we did in our community was we asked government. Uh, we asked businesses, we asked residents to um, hang up purple lights during the month of October to symbolically show support for survivors of domestic violence. And it's a very, very simple thing for uh, people to be able to participate in. Uh, they could just, by putting a purple light on their uh, front door, they can participate. Um, what what happened with this uh, campaign is other communities heard about it. A number of the uh, people in uh, politics in, in the state of Washington, the governor, a uh, member of the U.S. House of Representatives, the attorney general, all came out in support of Purple Light Nights. And this literally just took off and spread across the United States and Canada. So, um, and in other countries as well. So this last October, we've had official Purple Light Night events in 33 states, uh, several provinces in Canada, and in other countries, um, England, Australia, Guam, and other places around the world. And one of the uh, characteristics uh, that a number of communities have done with this is they have um, launched their Purple Light Nights campaign, typically on October 1st. And uh, and so what will happen is many will call a press conference on October 1st. They'll light a prominent landmark or perhaps several landmarks purple, and they'll use that, um, that kickoff for Domestic Violence Awareness Month to raise awareness and to talk about how people can get help, and how big of a problem this is. It's, a lot of it is letting people know that they are not alone, that there are people here that care about this issue, they care about them, and there is help that's available. And so we've, uh, we've had this campaign, again, it's all over the United States and in Canada. We've had uh, 
official Purple Light Night campaigns in Houston, Texas, where they lit five of the more prominent landmarks in Houston, Purple, uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Um, I've organized a couple events in Memphis, uh, Tennessee, and in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, but it's uh, it's something that we it's very simple that people can participate in and uh, and be a part of. The other event that we sponsor uh, through Go Purple USA is called Go Purple Day, and it's on October 1st. And it is a it's really a social media campaign to raise awareness. And so the idea is for uh, people to wear purple with their uh, fellow employees, uh, whatever group they may be a part of, um, and to take a photo and share that on social media with the hashtag Go Purple Day. And so we've had people across the United States participate in that, and it's a raise a way of raising awareness about the problem of domestic violence to let people know that there are a lot of people uh, that care. And again, a big part of what we try to do is direct people to resources. Um, one of the main resources that we point people to is the National Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And every state has its own state coalition against domestic violence, which is going to be a great resource um, online to find out about shelters, to find out about crisis lines, uh, counseling, a lot of help and support that they can get locally in their communities. And so we uh, we encourage people to take advantage of the resources that are there and really to lend their voice to this issue because um, every single one of us has a part to play and we can make a difference in helping people that uh, – that we know and care about. If they see that we're involved in this cause, that can be an encouragement and a help uh, to them in working through what they're going through. And if, if someone, uh, you know, has a coworker or a neighbor that they maybe suspect may be suffering from this, um, you know, what's the, what's the proper approach? I mean, do they slip them a phone number subtly? Do they invite them out to have a cup of coffee? I mean, you know, maybe there's no one answer, but, um, you know, I, I'm just curious what your recommendation would be. Yeah, well, my, my first recommendation is going to be using the, uh, the crisis hotline, like the uh, National Domestic Violence Hotline, and a lot of communities do have a, a hotline that's a resource that people can ask questions and get help. Uh, so, that's, so that's definitely something that someone can do, um, like give a phone number or even make a call preliminarily and uh, you know, and talk about a situation, get some feedback uh, from that individual. I think having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody, uh, if you've got a good relationship with the person, um, again, they may feel scared and may be hesitant to talk. But um, if you just point out some of the uh, areas of concern that you see, you know, like you see if they're not um, interacting with people, they're not taking part in activities, maybe you see um, – they're not feeling good about themselves. Um, maybe there's signs of um, injuries, things like that. If there's some of those signs that come up, then uh, that can be a talking point, um, just to have a conversation with somebody and, and letting know, let them know that you care. Uh, and then just being actively okay. involved in speaking about this issue, whether you're just even through the form of social media, uh, you know, sharing about Purple Light Nights, sharing about Go Purple Day, uh, and just talking about this issue, sharing articles about domestic violence. There's Every day there's articles in the news about some celebrity or some, you know, some other occurrence of this happening, and uh, it's, it's a huge, huge problem. Um, and it really takes a lot of people getting involved to do something about it to change the narrative. Is, I, I'm just curious, is there a country that, I mean, I don't know if there's such statistics, but is there a country that might be worse or is uh, like the top three countries? I mean, is, uh, it, it, is there such a statistic? Um, there are statistics, and, and, I, I, and I'm sorry I don't have them readily available right now with me, but a lot of the statistics I've heard is there's a number of countries that have a higher percentage than the United States do 
on of domestic violence. So it it really does cross all socioeconomic barriers. It's every race, every religion, uh, you know, every economic status from people that are, you know, destitute on up to people that are very wealthy. It's uh, it's really across all different kinds of demographics. You can imagine that this uh, occurs. All right. Well, Kurt, I want to thank you for the valuable information you've shared today. It is important. And uh, I want to give you the last word here. Uh, why don't you um, uh, give us the hotline again, uh, let listeners know how they can donate uh, if they, you know, have some discretionary income right now uh, to support the work of Go Purple and, um, you know, close with uh, any other comments maybe um, I haven't thought to ask you. Okay. Well, thank you. All right. Well, the um, the phone number for the National Domestic Violence Hotline, once again, that is 800-799-7233. The other thing I would encourage each of your listeners to do is to, and this is something you can do very easily through a Google search, is pull up your state association against domestic violence so the california association against domestic violence here in um, alabama where i live we have an alabama coalition and you can find out about a lot of resources that are available that are local uh to where you live Um, we would love to have your listeners participate in our uh, community awareness campaigns uh, purple light nights and go purple day Um, And probably the best resource would be uh, going to our website, which is gopurpleusa.org, and you'll be able to find information about Purple Light Nights and Go Purple Day there. It also does, we're a 501c3 uh, nonprofit, and so if uh, any of your listeners would like to donate and help support our cause, uh, we would uh, greatly appreciate that. Um, and we just want to encourage people to get involved and just know that uh, your voice matters. It matters to the people that you know. Uh, it matters to people in your community. And the more voices that we raise about this issue, um, the more that we can do something about it. And so I just want to really encourage your listeners to get involved and make a difference because uh, this is a personal issue, and uh, every one of us can do something uh, to help advance this cause. Okay. Well, Kurt, thank you, uh, and especially uh, for your time today. I know you have a busy day. You're in, you're in move mode, uh, so I will let <laughs> you get back to uh, that, that important chore. Uh, I, I appreciate you even taking the time to, uh, uh, you know, considering, you know, such a big undertaking, uh, you know, you're embarking upon today. Uh, so thank you very much for all the valuable information, and um, uh, watch for an email from me uh, when in, in, uh uh, I want to continue this conversation just a little bit, uh, you know, when you're out from under your move. Well, thank you very much. It was an honor for me to be on your show today. Thank you for inviting me. All right. Thank you, Kurt. Uh, so uh, right. that was Kurt uh, Lindsley, uh, CEO of Go Purple USA. Um, okay, listeners, uh, hang on uh, with me for a minute. Uh, I am going to come back uh, in two minutes here. Hello, let me say a few things about Joe Carson's film, Dancing with Gaia, an exploration of Earth-based spirituality shot at sacred sites around the world. Here is what Drusilla Pettibone said on Dearmist.com. I was truly touched and even awed by the film. I don't think I can comment on it adequately until I've had a chance to watch it a couple more times. I really appreciate that there is so much substantive information to digest. For example, the info about henges and tracing the horizon line is all new to me and totally fascinating. 
The film was obviously very beautiful, and I was amazed how it was able to capture so many of the descriptions visually and seamlessly connect vintage footage with modern. I especially loved when images were dynamically superimposed on each other, like the lace with the water and the dancing in the flowering meadow. A visual feast and with so many layers. I am also so pleased to have been introduced to Monica Shu and her work. It's so important for pagans to become aware of our heritage. It seems easily lost among so many new books, and the film really brought me home in a new way. Dancing with Gaia is available at dancingwithgaia.com. I am back, and I just have a couple little tidbits here to share with you. Uh, First of all, I will be back with you Sunday. Yes, that's in two days. Uh, I am going to have with me uh, Richard Grossinger, and uh, he's just written the book, uh, Bottoming Out the Universe, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing, which is a book about um, an exploration into consciousness, the universe, and the nature of reality. Uh, That sounds like that might be a deep and fun conversation. Uh, Then uh, the final Friday of the month, the 29th, uh, we... uh you know, close out May with Caridwin Falling Star. And uh, she has a wonderful book out called Broth from the Cauldron, Magical Memoir of a Shamanic Witch, which I have to tell you, I am thoroughly enjoying uh, her reading, the format of the book, her, her wit, uh, it's it's just delightful. So uh, we're going to be talking to her. Uh, she um, calls herself uh, a shaman devoted to synthesizing the best of the old ways uh, with lectures, classes, uh, counseling sessions, tarot, hypnotherapy, soul retrieval, uh, and um, and she's also written some. Uh, great novels about witchcraft uh, set in the 16th century Scotland. So anyway, uh, two, uh, those are my two guests uh, rounding out uh, the month of May. Uh, I can hardly believe uh, we are about ready to uh, begin the month of June. So uh, thank you, dear listeners, uh, for your listener loyalty. Uh, I appreciate uh, your feedback. Uh, Please keep it coming. Uh, You are the gas in my tank. And until uh, we meet again uh, 48 hours from now, uh, may Isis embrace you in her golden wings. And please remember, what you nurture, it thrives. What you neglect, it withers. And uh, that can go either way with good stuff and bad stuff. So you want to make sure you're nurturing the things you want to call into your life and um, you're not putting any energy into the bad, the stuff that uh, no longer serves you. All right, then. Uh, Have a great weekend. um, And I will be back with you at 11 o'clock on Sunday. Bye-bye.